You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of the properties of prime numbers, creating self-replicating machines, and how online advertising works. Let's have a listen. Okay, question here from Paolo. Um, what is the most curious property of prime numbers? The most curious property of prime numbers. There's so many curious properties. Well, well here's one that I was surprised by recently. So if you look at, so prime numbers, numbers that only have what you can't divide exactly by anything except one. So numbers like seven, 11, but not numbers like nine and 10, which have, which can be factored. Um, so the, the fraction of numbers that are prime gradually decreases as you increase the number. It goes down roughly logarithmically. Um, but one question that I uh, happened to notice a while ago, if you look at the average distance between primes for, uh, for numbers, for fairly small numbers, like numbers less than 1,000 or something, the average distance between primes is six. Okay, the most common, you know, that you get a different distribution of distances and, and the most common is six. So like 11, well, the next one is 13, but if it was, if it was 17, that'd be six apart, okay? So you might have thought, okay, so for numbers less than, let's say, a million, the most common difference between primes is six. Okay, you might have thought that will last forever, but it doesn't. Gradually, as you get to larger and larger numbers, the average distance between primes gets a bit bigger, bit bigger, bit bigger, never stops. Actually, okay, I'll, I'll mention another, another property of primes that you might find, find fun. So I mentioned that the density of primes um, gradually decreases as, as, you, as you make numbers bigger, the fraction of numbers that are prime gradually goes down. It goes down like the uh, thing, the logarithm of the size of the number. Uh, doesn't the logarithm is just um, if you are saying uh, let, let's not talk about what that is the the um, uh, um, I just say that the the logarithm to the base ten of a thousand is three the logarithm to the base ten of a million is six a billion is nine it's the it's the number of times you're multiplying by ten to get to the number you want. That, that number of times you multiply is the logarithm of the number. And um, uh, so the, that, that means you can get to a very big number without uh, and, and still have a fairly small logarithm. Okay, so there's, a, um, uh, there's a, a fact about prime numbers that the number of primes, the density of primes is always, and I'm not gonna get it the right way around, is always either less than or greater than um, this, uh, this thing that's given by this logarithm. And that's true for any reasonable size number. You work it out on a computer, you'll get, you'll find it out. It's true, but actually, there are numbers that are in, for incredibly, incredibly huge numbers. Numbers like ten to the ten to the one hundred. Um, that's that's like a a one with um, uh, a one with let's see a billion, 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 billion zeros after it. So a very big number. For a number that that big, this fact about the density of primes flips around and it's no longer true. So it's really surprising that there can be something 
that is sort of just talked about in terms of primes, where it's true for almost for numbers up to even absolutely huge numbers, but it isn't always true. And it's, a, it's an interesting fact about math that things like that can happen, that you can think something is true for you know, almost every number, for, for numbers up to huge sizes, but until you've actually got a formal proof, something where you can just deduce from this step to that step to that step that it's true, you're not sure it's true for every possible number. And that's a lot of the effort in pure mathematics has to do with making these proofs. You know, they teach small versions of those in, in school. Um, the reason that proofs of things that might seem obvious are still worth doing is that you might, uh, it, it's um, to sort of deal with a really infinite case, you need one of these proofs. They're probably, there are lots and lots of other properties of prime numbers, but let's, let's go on to something else. There's a question here from Hamid. How far are we from building von Neumann machines? I'm not quite sure what you mean by that, but kind of guessing what you mean is self-replicating uh, computers or self-replicating systems. So, so one of the questions is, you know, when we see biology, one of the, one of the sort of uh, notable features of biology is biological organisms manage to make copies of themselves. Well, at least approximate copies, you know. Given, given two parents, you can make a child and the child isn't the same as their parents. As, uh, as, as many people, as many children are, are, will point out to their parents, I certainly did to my parents, my children have pointed out to me, the uh, children aren't the same as parents, but they are, they're made from the same kind of, uh, they're, they're similar, so to speak. And in some organisms, there's, there's sort of directly, direct replication of, um, of, of a parent to, to child organisms. So one of the features of biology is this, this amazing capability to make a copy of an organism. And you know it wasn't known back in, in the 1950s, uh, 1940s and early 1950s, it wasn't known how that could possibly be. How did, what was the, what was the mechanism by which an organism could make a copy of itself? And uh, a person called John von Neumann um, tried to come up with sort of a, an elaborate kind of theory for how life might work and how things might make copies of themselves. And he came up with a very elaborate theory, um, most of which isn't really so relevant. Um, although he did sort of invent the idea that maybe it was like a program, maybe it was like a computer program. And then in 1953, the uh, DNA, the structure of DNA was, was, was decoded, and it was realized that the DNA molecules that essentially all life on Earth, except for RNA, some, some things only have a sort of half of DNA RNA, like the virus we're all fighting right now is an RNA virus. But, um, but basically, DNA is a molecule that stores the programs for all organisms. Like for example, our DNA for humans is six billion base pairs long. So it's about, um, let's see, that means it's about three, uh, it's about three gigabytes of data. Um, did I get that right? Base pair, no, it'll be half that, 1.5 gigabytes of data um, to represent uh, one, of our, uh, one of us humans. And, and what happens, when sort of when a human is built, so to speak, what's happening is inside each of our cells, there are uh, there's a whole molecular mechanism that's looking at that program on our DNA and actually building molecules that implement that that are specified by that program and and some of those some of the pieces of that program will specify you know skin cells, hair cells, heart cells, muscle muscle cells. Those are just different parts of the program that is specified on every cell, all the 100 trillion cells in our bodies have a copy of that piece of DNA. So it's this kind of 
it's this scheme for being able to uh, replicate. And the, the way it works is um, DNA is a, a molecule which has two strands. And in order to replicate, what happens is one strand comes off, and then basically another strand is formed from the uh, from the scaffolding that's created. But because these strands, each each strand has it has some uh, code that's made from these uh, uh, little little um, uh, collections of atoms, base pairs, um, A, T, G, and C, and um, they're set up so that whenever there's a, a G on one strand, there has to be a C on the corresponding strand. So if you only have one strand and you start trying to rebuild another strand, if there was a G on the first strand, you'll get a C on the second strand, and eventually you have essentially a copy of the uh, uh, copies of these, uh, essentially a, just a, a um, essentially a copy of, of one strand on the other strand, and that's that's how you manage to replicate the molecule. So so we've got in all of us in all life on Earth. There's this idea of self-replicating molecules. Uh, we have not yet managed to make with technology anything that works as a self-replicating molecule in the way that DNA works. We're getting closer to that, but we haven't managed to do it yet. Um, and, and when people think about doing technology that involves self-replication, they usually actually think about leveraging, about using what biology has already constructed using DNA and RNA and all those kinds of things. So one question is, so one thing is, can you make a self-replicating thing that isn't based on biology and isn't based on something that has come out of the history of life on Earth over the last two billion years and so on? And the answer is we're not quite there yet, although it's clear we could do that with a molecular, it's kind of a molecular scale computer, um, but we don't yet know quite how to do it. Uh, actually, let me say something about molecular scale computers. So I mean, computers as they exist right now, you know, computers store information bit by bit. So they're they're storing, you know, any any data in a computer is ultimately stored in terms of uh, ones and zeros, on or off, etc. And there's just a huge array of those. And so, you know, I think my computer has 96 gigabytes of uh, of random access memory, which means it has about um, uh, 100 billion times eight. So, um, uh, see, this is where multiplication facts come in useful. Um, so that's uh, 800 billion, nearly a trillion uh, bits of memory, uh, each is just specifying sort of on or off, and, and ultimately that's representing all of the programs and images and everything that, I'm, that, that are in my computer. But, um, uh, the, um, uh, but the way that each one of those bits in my computer is represented by the presence or absence of maybe 10,000 electrons. So they, that's like, you know, in, in Inside atoms, there are electrons, and electricity is made up of electrons. And each bit in a modern computer is represented by maybe 10,000 electrons. So if there's a one, there's 10,000 electrons there. If there's a zero, they're not there. OK, so we can ask the question, could we make a computer in which bits of information are represented one electron at a time, where we only use one electron, or we only use one atom to represent each bit of information in our computer? Well, the, the, the one problem with that, which is that uh, there tends to be, when you get down to those small scales, um, there's, there's always the kind of, um, well, there's, for example, always heat. There's always um, uh, things, are, uh, the molecules, the atoms are not completely stationary. They're always, they're always sort of bouncing around. And as a result of that, there'll be, it's like that one electron that was supposed to be there, well, actually, maybe something will kind of uh, just knock into it 
and the electron won't be there when it was supposed to be there, or there will be an electron there when there wasn't supposed to be there. There'll be little errors that creep in when you're using just a, a really tiny number of electrons to store each bit. Well, actually, there's a trick for, for but so, so right now, so that's one of the problems is that when we get down to trying to store, you know, one electron per bit, um, we'll be subject to all of these errors that come about through just the, the things that happen down at the scale of atoms, the sort of random motion and random processes that happen down at the scale of atoms. Okay, let me mention one trick for, um, uh, it's called error correcting codes. And it's a way of, um, uh, it's a way of, of being able to uh, be sure about data that you have. So let me give you an example. Um, the, um, so let's say that you wanted to store um, you wanted to store a sequence of ones and zeros. And you had, let's say you were storing five ones and zeros. And so you'd, you might have one, zero, zero, one, one. Uh, that might be what you're trying to store, one, zero, zero, one, one, okay? But now, uh, let's say we want to check whether one of those bits was wrong. Let's say the first one might be flipped to be a zero, and we're not sure. And we say that there might be an error of that kind. Well, here's the trick. So what you do is you you just say you look at the one zero one one. What did I say? One one. Did I say five bits? Uh, oh yeah, one zero one one. So then um, then what you say is, do you have an even number of ones or an odd number of ones? If you have an odd number of ones, add an extra one at the end. If you have an even number of ones, put a zero at the end. So we have one zero zero one one, and that has an odd number of ones, so there'll be a one at the end. Okay, so now if we're looking at that group of six bits, six digits, and we see that we can then ask the question, did that bit at the end agree with, did it correctly represent whether there were an even or odd number of ones? If it did correctly represent it, we can have some confidence that there wasn't, we know that there couldn't have been one of those, one of those bits that was flipped, because if it had been flipped, then that last check digit should be different. Okay, so so that um, uh, so and, and um, if it if it if it's wrong, if that last bit doesn't correctly confirm the number of ones in the in the previous part, then then we know that um, uh, then we know that something went wrong, and so we can, for example, say, well, we have to uh, reread it, or we have to uh, generate some error or something like that. So that's a that's sort of the basic idea of an error correcting code. Actually, one can do a little bit better than that. And one can, by adding a little bit of extra data, um, by you have a bunch of data and you add a little bit of extra data, you can actually correct errors. Um, you can, for example, if you say there's only one error, there's at most one error, you can say, well, I know what from just the check digits at the end, you can say, I know what that error is, and I can correct it. If there were two errors, you might be out of luck. But if, if there's only one error, you, you can correct it. So error correcting codes are really, really widely used. I'm sure as the data from my webcam through the internet to you guys is being transmitted, it's full of error correcting codes um, that are trying to um, deal with uh, things that might be bits that might be being lost in different places. Um, and uh, the if you look at, um, I don't know, if you look at a book, do I have a book readily at hand? Um, no, I don't think I can. Uh, Reach, uh, reach and find a book. Let's see if I can reach and find a book. Yeah, here we go. Okay, here's a book. Uh, this happens to be a book I wrote. But um, that's um, uh, so. If we look, 
back here, if we look there, that is the ISBN number, the International Standard Book Number. That's every, every book that's published gets one of those numbers that specifies it's a, it's a way of identifying which book it is. Well, uh, when ISBNs were invented, one of the things that was done was to add a check digit at the end. So if somebody were to, were to type in this ISBN number and they would get one of those numbers wrong, then that nine at the end, that's the check digit, that nine at the end wouldn't agree correctly. And so they'd know they'd typed in something wrong. Um, so that's an example of one of these error correcting codes. So that's a way that one can go, if one's trying to build like a computer out of, out of atoms, um, that's one of the important tricks one can use to try and get rid of the effects of kind of uh, sort of small, uh, small uh, perturbations, small errors that happen at the level of atoms. One of the things that's been a kind of a long running question is, okay, how would we build something that where we have like, let's say we wanted to build a little machine, a little, a little thing with gears or something, and we want to make it actually out of atoms. Um, we want to make it so that the gear teeth, so that each gear tooth is just a small number of atoms. Is that a possible thing we can do? Well, actually, if you want to know about like rotors, like something like a gear, turns out there are bacteria that actually have little flagella that are used to little propellers that they use to swim along that actually have essentially molecular sized gearing in them, um, where the where the individual uh, uh, the individual pieces of the kind of the gear are at the scale of a, of a fairly small number of atoms. That's something that was created using the machinery of life. But the question is, can we make, so that was something that was created from their DNA program. The molecules were created that followed that DNA program that made this kind of gear structure. So the question is, can we, can we do something like that, um, not uh, through DNA, not by using biological evolution, um, to have created the apparatus to do it, but could we make, uh, as a piece of technology, something that will make a molecular scale machine? So the answer is not yet, but one day that will be possible. And uh, uh, you know somebody is going to figure out how to do this. Um, see, the thing that is right, right now, when we want to build things out of molecules, the main way we do that, there are really two ways to do it. One is, to use living systems and to use the fact that DNA can encode a program that can specify how certain kinds of molecules, proteins, can be built up. That's way number one. Way number two is use chemistry, because a lot of chemistry is about synthesizing molecules, going from one set of molecules and saying, you know, uh, mix these two chemicals together, heat them up, stir them, stir them together, all those kinds of things. And what's happening when you do that is molecules are combining, breaking apart, all those kinds of things. And what you want to do in chemistry, chemistry is kind of the story, uh, synthetic chemistry at least, is the story of how do you go from, let's say, perhaps quite small molecules to bigger molecules that do something useful. So like molecules that can be used to, uh, to make materials one's interested in, molecules that can be made to use to make drugs one wants, those kinds of things. And that, that story of kind of how do you, how do you synthesize uh, molecules is, is a story of how do you find this procedure? And, and these days, you know, there may be a 20-step procedure. Maybe the biggest ones are maybe 30 steps or something, maybe 35 steps that say, do this, do that, mix these chemicals together, do this, do this, do this, and you're gradually building up this bigger and bigger molecule. It's kind of the, the, the sort of the story of can you, can you figure out how to sort of uh, 
make changes to the molecule you're building up so that you get the molecule you want. That's kind of been the, the story of chemistry. But that doesn't really make molecular scale machines. That usually makes molecules that just sort of sit there. And for example, they're a particular shape. And so they'll fit into some, some gap in some other molecule to prevent the molecule from doing something you don't want it to do. Or there'll be molecules that line themselves up in a certain way. But those molecules aren't like machines. They're not, they're not like actually sort of uh, doing something at a molecular scale. They're not making something with a bunch of cogs and gears and things at a molecular scale. And we don't know how to do that yet. Um, I think, uh, I personally think that's one of these kinds of things which somebody, some clever inventor out there, is going to figure out how to start building things at a molecular scale. And I think it's going to be something where you effectively, you build yourself molecules that can act as tools, and then you build yourself ways to sort of program those little tools, and the tools will be operating at the scale of individual molecules, and they'll be sort of constructing other molecules, and gradually you'll start off with pretty simple tools, but gradually you'll end up building up more and more complicated molecules, and eventually you'll be able to build these sort of molecular scale machines. Okay, so this was a sort of long answer to, um, so, so I think that's one of the really exciting things that I think is part of the future of technology is molecular scale, uh, molecular scale machines, molecular scale computers, those kinds of things. Not there yet, but, uh, but perhaps we will be. And uh, one of the features of those molecular scale machines is, well, we can expect that we'll be able to do things like what life does of being able to take a blueprint for this is a collection of molecules we want to build. Okay, now I've got a universal replicator, a, a, a machine that can be given a program. Okay, let, let me back up for a second. You know, DNA, as I mentioned, lets us build certain kinds of molecules, lets us build proteins. Proteins are made of amino acids. There are maybe 20 amino acids that are commonly used by, by the organisms on Earth. And a protein is a sequence of amino acids. So it might be, um, uh, it, and, the, and this, what that sequence is, is specified by the program on the DNA, by the sequence of base pairs on the DNA. And the, the neat thing about proteins is proteins make up everything. They make up, you know, muscle, acti actin is, a, is, is something in muscles, or they make up uh, uh, rhodopsin for, uh, you know, in our retinas, or they make up, um, oh gosh, I could start naming, you know, there's, there's about, in, in us humans, there's about uh, 30,000 proteins, I think, that are, that are commonly, that, that sort of are, are commonly used by us, us humans. Uh, hemoglobin for our blood, or all these different kinds of, of, of things. These are all proteins. And they all are built from these same elements, these same 20 amino acids in different orders. And the, one of the neat things that proteins do is depending on the order of those amino acids, the proteins, uh, some amino acids tend to attract each other, some tend to repel each other. The proteins will fold themselves up into really complicated patterns. And the shape of the final protein is critical to how it works. Like for example, you know, actin is a, this long filamentary protein that's used for muscles, completely different from hemoglobin, for example, which is a, a protein that has a sort of a, a little cage in the middle of it that, uh, that likes to have iron uh, atoms in that cage. And that it, it kind of, it floats around and it sort of collects iron atoms because only an iron atom fits in that particular shape and, and structure of cage in the protein. And those iron atoms are used to, to uh, uh, a part of the transport of oxygen in our blood. So proteins, um, just by having 
the, 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 these different um, sequences of amino acids, they end up being different shapes and they end up having different functions and they end up interacting differently with other proteins. And that's kind of the story of how, how we get, how we actually operate as, as living systems is uh, we're, we're full of proteins that do things. Now, a question that you can ask is, let's say proteins are very specific kinds of molecules made from amino acids. But let's say we wanted to make uh, more arbitrary kinds of, um, uh, kinds of things out of atoms. So for example, one, one pretty versatile kind of thing is carbon. So carbon is an element. And uh, you know, one thing carbon makes is the graphite that um, you find in pencils and things. Another thing carbon makes is diamond. Those are really different. I mean, graphite is you know, this black looking thing that's quite soft. Diamond is this transparent uh, thing that looks, that's really hard. And those are both made for just arrangements of carbon atoms. In, in graphite, the carbon atoms are arranged in kind of sheets, each one with a little hexagonal, uh, a sheet of hex, hexagonal arrangement of atoms. In diamond, there's a particular way of, in which the atoms of, of carbon are packed together that makes them more closely packed and have the, very, have the strength that diamond has. But both of those materials are just made from carbon atoms. And uh, not so long ago, about 30, 30 to 40 years ago, uh, another form of carbon was found called buckyballs, um, which are kind of like, like, like a soccer ball. Um, they, every sort of the, the joins on a soccer ball, imagine you put carbon atoms at every join on a soccer ball. That's an example of a buckyball um, uh, made from, it's, it's kind of this cluster of carbon atoms. Um, and that's something where there are all kinds of weird applications in nonstick frying pans and all sorts of other places for buckyballs. And, th and there are other forms of carbon, uh, things called carbon nanotubes that uh, might be really useful to make uh, uh, really good uh, wires for conducting electricity and things like that. Um, but all of these things are just carbon atoms, just arranged in different, in, in different ways. And so one of the questions is, if you just say, I want to make uh, you know, some weird shape out of carbon atoms, how do I do that? Right now, nobody knows how to do it. Uh, you know, when buckyballs were discovered, they were discovered almost by accident in uh, in soot, actually, um, where where just uh, you know carbon had been sort of arranged randomly, and some of the things happened to arranged in those kind of clusters. But it is almost certainly the case that there is a well, I'm I'm sure it's the case there is a way of constructing it at, at an atomic scale, sort of an almost arbitrary shape out of carbon, and so. You know, you can imagine that as sort of a future for technology is these, these atomic scale things that have been constructed, even just out of carbon. But if we say, well, let's allow other materials into the, into the picture, we can say, well, how will we construct an arbitrary object? How will we just make a thing that from a program can just sort of knit together this thing made out of atoms that contains, you know, silicon, aluminum, I don't know, copper, carbon, whatever, and just sort of knit it together in arbitrary shape. We don't know how to do that yet. One day we will, um, and uh, and one day we'll be able to make it so that all these different kinds of objects that we're constructing are well. We specify how to make them, but not only that. Instead of them just being there as sort of materials that just sit there and and do nothing, um, there'll be things which can actively respond to their environment. I mean, so for example, you know, plastic, big invention of the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. I mean, plastic is these molecules that are these long polymer molecules uh, where there's, it's mostly uh, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, um, 
where um, uh, you've just arranged them in, um, uh, in mostly carbon and hydrogen, actually, where you've just arranged a, a long sequence of, of, of atoms that all fit together to make these very, very, very long molecules. But the long molecules don't really do anything. They just make a material that has certain properties. One can imagine a time when one could make something where there's actually a little computer operating sort of at the level of individual molecules. So your material, instead of just being a material that sits there and has mechanical properties that has a certain strength and things like that, is a material that can do all kinds of things. It could respond to, uh, uh, you know, it could respond to its environment and it could start changing color like a chameleon or something, or it could do all kinds of, all kinds of strange things. Uh, where it's where it's operating like a computer, but at the scale of atoms. So that's one of the one of the things in the next probably uh, I don't know fifty years or something. I think you can you can readily expect that that will be possible. I mean I think it's the the there was a time when all the materials we had were natural materials. We had things like wood. We had things like copper. We had things where you could go into the natural world and you could just mine that material or go collect it by by you know chopping down a tree or something. Um, in what happened in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, was the first kind of synthetically created materials, which plastics were the big example. And today, you know, we're very used to synthetically made materials, materials that have been made, you know, artificially. Um, but we're not yet used to materials that actually compute at the level of individual atoms. And I think in 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 the future, it will seem like oh. You know, really, there were materials that were just static materials that didn't have computation built into the material. That will be surprising to people. Okay, looping back to the original question about von Neumann machines. So, kind of the thing that came out of von Neumann's really fairly incorrect, actually, ideas about sort of how life might work was the idea that you could make a machine that would make a copy of itself. And you could imagine something as 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 von Neumann did that was at the level of you know giant pieces of you know gears and things you could see, and the machine would have you know arms that would reach in and, and do this and that and the other. Um, the uh, um, we can also imagine, as I was sort of talking about at some length, there uh, uh, machines at the level of molecules and atoms and so on that uh, could make copies of themselves. But the the question really is. Could we imagine something where a machine makes a copy of itself? And, and the answer is absolutely. Now, you know, what could we do with that? Well, actually, we are in the middle of an ugly situation where a thing is making a copy of itself. Right? The, the, uh, the coronavirus is, uh, it isn't quite able to, on its own, make a copy of itself. Like a bacterium is able to, on its own, make a copy of itself. A virus cannot. A virus needs to kind of hijack our cells to make copies of itself. And so, for example, um, I think, um, uh, let's see, we probably have this point about, uh, so, so how many copies of the coronavirus, uh, 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 the coronavirus is basically a bunch of RNA, it's a pretty small piece of RNA, it's about 29,000 base pairs, all curled up inside a, a coat um, that is, uh, uh, that sort of keeps the DNA, it keeps the RNA um, sort of uh, stable inside because RNA, unlike DNA, is quite an unstable molecule, um, and it, it has some some extra little spikes on the outside. Um, but that that little tiny thing, it's it's what it's maybe a hundred nanometers, a uh, um, hundred billionths of a, of a of a meter across. Um, that little tiny thing, um, when when 
it uses our cellular apparatus can, can make copies of itself. Um, and uh, I think last I worked out, let's see, I haven't worked this out in a while. I think it has maybe, maybe there are a hundred billion trillion copies of that virus that have now been made in the world. Um, so it's kind of a hundred, is that right? About a, a billion trillion copies of it versus our 10 billion humans and so on. And, and uh, you know, we're in the process of winning, so to speak. But that's a case where there's been a copy of that, um, uh, of that object, that virus that's been made. So you know, what people started talking about in the 1950s when, when von Neumann machines were the rage was maybe we can make spacecraft that will be self-replicating spacecraft. And so one of the ideas was, let's go put something on the moon that is a factory that can basically make copies of, let's say, the factory. Well, let's send something into space that's a spacecraft that's out, uh, you know, out in the universe and it's gonna make copies of itself. Well, it's kind of tough because you have to have material to make a copy from. And if you're in interstellar space, for example, you might have one atom every, every cubic meter. So that's hardly a lot of stuff to make copies from. But let's say that you, uh, you arrive on your, your favorite planet, your favorite exoplanet, and you successfully land there and you're gonna say, I'm gonna make copies of myself here. Well. Uh, we're certainly not there yet, but we can certainly imagine a time when it's possible. Um, I don't know whether it'll be more like, you know, making copies of a virus or more like making copies of a little sort of molecular scale object or more like copies of making a big spacecraft. I think it's going to be actually easier to make copies of things that are little tiny molecular scale things. Um, now, you know, is it exciting to populate the galaxy with little viruses? Not so clear. Um, it might be more exciting to do it with machines that we feel a little bit closer to. I'm I'm not sure, but but that's um, uh, that's kind of so that's a that's a long answer to that interesting question. How does Facebook know that I wanted a new VR headset when I didn't tell anyone? Okay, that's an interesting question. So this whole question of of showing ads to people, what people want to do is to show ads to people who are going to care about what they're being shown as an ad. So for example, if somebody shows me an ad for, um, I don't know, cigars, it's a wasted ad because I've never had a cigar in my life and I don't ever expect to have one. So that ad is going to not be a useful, useful ad to show me. If they show me an ad for uh, a VR headset, well, I actually have a few of those already, but maybe I might be interested in that. Um, if they show me an ad for uh, a book about um, something about the history of quantum mechanics or something, I might right now be really interested in that. That might be a real, a real good hit. So the question is, how do, you, how do you guess what kind of ad um, I'll be interested in? So basically, you have to know a certain amount about me. So what always used to happen when ads mostly appeared in, well, they ads in like newspapers, ads in television shows. The idea there is, okay, let, let's say there's a television show and it is a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a baking show, for example, okay? Okay, then what you have to do is figure out if people are watching the baking show, what kinds of things are they likely to be interested in? So for instance, they're watching a baking show, there's a decent chance they might be interested in, you know, kitchen utensils. 
or they might be interested in, I'm showing my complete ignorance of these things, but they might be interested in, you know, people advertising things that you can use to put in the stuff that you bake, cookie, cookie mix or something. There's a good chance that, that, um, uh, that you'd be interested in, in something like that. If you're watching a baking show and, um, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's no particular reason to believe that you will be interested in vacations to the Antarctic, for example. Right? So it would be kind of a waste to, to put an ad for a vacation to the Antarctic in the middle of a baking show. Similarly, if you, if you have a, uh, you know, a show about uh, you know, travel to the Antarctic, it, putting a, a thing about cookie dough in that show is probably kind of a, a waste. Right? So, so the thing is, if you have television shows, for example, you try to get an idea of the demographic, the kinds of people who watch that show, and then you try to figure out what kinds of ads are likely to be relevant to those people. So for example, if you, for a television show or something like that, they, the, the way that's done is there is a sampling. So some people pick, uh, choose to say, I'm going to, they, they, there's a company called Nielsen, for example, that, um, that gives people these little boxes that kind of measure every show that they watch. And they know something about those people and they know what shows they're watching. And so they compile kind of information that says, this show that maybe you know, nobody necessarily knows, you know, when a show is made, they don't necessarily know who's gonna watch it. And suddenly that show may become popular among, you know, um, I don't know, 13-year-old uh, girls who like video games. Who knows? And that may be a demographic that, um, that develops for that show, which the people who created the show had no idea would be, would be relevant. But, but so what's done for like a television show is you're just sampling people who watch the show and you're trying to compile information on who watches that show. Okay, so that's sort of the traditional model of advertising. What's happened in social media is something a little bit more complicated, which is that your, the, the information that exists about you comes from what you look at. It comes from a variety of things, but it comes from what you look at in social media. It comes from things like who your friends are, what kinds of things you post in social media, all these kinds of things. So if you're posting a bunch of stuff about um, where you're, let's say you asked about a VR headset, if you post a bunch of things talking about virtual reality, then if, if the system is watching what you're posting, then it can say, oh, this is a person interested in virtual reality. Okay, I've got this advertiser over here who says they're looking for people who are interested in virtual reality. Let's match them up and have that ad shown to this person who posted about virtual reality. Now, of course, it's a very tricky issue because the question of, of how, um, you know, how you tell what somebody is really interested in, how the advertiser describes the set of people that they want to reach, it's all quite complicated. And you know, you'll find um, different companies, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, they use different methods for allowing advertisers to pick who they want to advertise to. Um, they also, in some cases, there are, well, there's a, there's a lot of, of complicated things that happen. I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a lot of things that personally, I'm not a big huge. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's complicated to know what, you know, it's a, it's a sort of artificial intelligence system that's trying to figure out, um, well, there, there is another issue, which is different advertisers will pay different amounts of money for different for having their ad reach different kinds of people. So for example, the VR 
advertiser might say, I will bid uh, 25 cents to show this ad to a, to a person with these characteristics. Okay, and another, another thing might say, might be some, I don't know, television show, or might be some, I don't know what, um, oh, I have no idea, some, um, some other thing, some video game or something, will say, I'll bid uh, 30 cents to show this ad to somebody with these other set of characteristics. And so there's this complicated market that happens, that um, happens actually in real time nowadays, um, before the ads actually show up on your screen, there will have been this bidding that will have happened where multiple advertisers will have said, that person, I want to get their, them looking at my ad. That person, they don't know who you are, specifically, they don't know your name, but they know certain features about you. And they're trying to match up the features that they know about you based on the posts you made, the friends you have, all those kinds of things with what they think their ad is going to be, uh, be successful for. And, and of course, then they can measure if they, if they bid on a bunch of people who have these characteristics, they can measure was their ad successful with those people or not. How do they tell whether the ad was successful? They tell because they can look at whether you clicked on that ad. So they know directly. It's much easier than, for example, a television ad where they don't really know directly um, whether, whether you responded to the ad. I mean, sometimes um, I, I have to admit I don't watch television really. So I, you, this used to be the case, and I may be way out of date, that in late night television, there would often be these direct response ads where there'd be an ad for a thing, and then there would be a call this 800 number now to get this thing. And part of the reason they were doing that was to figure out, first because they want to sell the thing, but also because they want to know. They know that in that 10 minute period, there was just this one ad that was running. And so they can measure uh, a particular, one ad in a particular part of the country, let's say, so they can measure what was the response to that ad. So a slightly long answer to that, that question. Um, the, uh, I mean, I, I would say that there's a, there's a very complicated story of, um, of kind of how, how advertising works on the internet. I, I could tell you in great detail, actually, how it works. And um, uh, uh, one of the things that's a little bit complicated is that the, the um, uh, because there are certain networks that, that put run ads, you might be looking at two completely different websites and knowledge about what you did on one website might somehow magically seem to be transported to another website. The reason that's happening is that both websites are using the same ad network and there are only a small number of very large ad networks. And so they're getting information from, and, and whether this should be allowed is an, is an interesting question, but you know, you're looking at one website over here and the ads from that website, the ad network that is serving ads on that, on that website is storing information about you. So even when you're looking at another website over here, it's able to use the information it got from when you looked at the first website. Um, uh, again, not, not completely obvious that that should be something that is allowed to happen, but that's something that uniformly does happen. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.